Father, that last song that we sung is a sober reminder um, of a day that's coming that we all must face. Lord, unless our Lord returns before then, the day is coming when it will be our dying day. And Lord, we want to be ready for that day, Lord. And the only way to be ready for that day is if Jesus is enough for us now. Because if he's not enough for us now, he won't be enough for us when we come to die. But if he is enough for us now, if we know that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us, and that Jesus uh, is our everything, he's all we need, he's the only one as our creator and our redeemer who can satisfy us for all eternity, then he will be more than enough for us to carry us through our dying day. And we will see him when we walk through that door. So, Lord, may he be enough for us today. And we pray that as we look at your word, that um, we would find that reality that Christ is enough for us, Lord. Um, I pray for my boys who are screaming right now that he would be enough for them too, Lord. Uh, may that be true for each one of us in this sanctuary, that Christ is enough. And Lord, if he's not, may you through your word prune us, may you change our hearts, and may he be enough for us starting today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've got a kind of a sizable chunk of scripture to get through uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses, 16, uh, verses 6 through 16, 6 through 16, and before we get into it, I'll read that for us, 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Paul says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." We've all been to children's parties that have involved balloons. And if there were boys present at those parties, we all knew that the life expectancy of those balloons 
would be a lot shorter than the length of the party itself. And that is because every boy knows that there is something strangely satisfying about popping a balloon. And that satisfaction doesn't ever leave us. And that satisfaction doesn't stop with, you know, party balloons. It also extends to balloon-headed people. There's still a satisfaction at seeing that balloon get popped. For example, if you're watching a football game, that football player that's been repeatedly trash-talking people all up in their face, and he's been repeatedly dancing in the end zone, we see a linebacker pancake him, and we say yes. There's a strange satisfaction in our hearts at seeing his balloon get popped. Or a person in power who's exalted himself to great heights, singing his own praises, and he happens to be laid low by circumstances that he did not seem see coming. And we feel that same satisfaction of seeing a, an ego get popped. But it's funny, though, when it's our balloon head that gets popped, it never feels all that satisfying. And in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, Paul is popping balloon heads. He is here in this passage, as he has been doing, he's continuing to chisel away at the, the Corinthians, uh, the foundation of the Corinthians' divisiveness, and that is their pride, their arrogance. What Paul writes here is devastating to their pride. Because these are believers who have begun to think that they are self-made men and women, taking credit for what only God should be receiving credit. For example, if you look at chapter 4, verse 7, Paul is again popping their balloon heads when he says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? They are acting like they made themselves. They redeemed themselves and they're sanctifying themselves. And he goes on in verse 8 to speak of how they think that they have reached the summit of knowledge and growth. They think they've arrived. They're perfected. They're mature. There's no more growing for them to do. He says in verse 8, and he's dripping with sarcasm here, he says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Then verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. So these Corinthian believers, they believed themselves to be mature believers. Perfect that they've, they've arrived. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16, Paul systematically works to pop their inflated egos with pinpricks of truth. And in our passage, we're going to see at least three pinpricks of truth that will let the air out of theirs and our too easily puffed up heads. And the first pinprick of truth we see in verses 6 through 9, and it's this. Only God can let you in on his secret wisdom. And we didn't discover it on our own. God has to let you in. God has to choose to reveal 
his truth to you. That's what we're going to see first, verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. Paul begins. He says, Yet we do speak wisdom. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Paul has been speaking against the wisdom of the world so much that he wants to clarify something. In having spoken against the wisdom of the world, he wants to make clear that he's not advocating that these believers check their brains at the door. He's not saying that they should stop trying to make sense of things. He's not saying that they should not seek to understand truth. He's not saying that they shouldn't seek to live life in accordance with reason or knowledge. What he has been speaking against is the world's brand of wisdom, that self-exalting, self-sufficient type of wisdom. He's not been speaking against wisdom in and of itself as God defines it. So he says, yet we do speak wisdom. We do. But he goes on. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. Among those who are mature. This is a wisdom. The wisdom that Paul speaks is a wisdom for those who are mature. Now when Paul said this, the Corinthians' ears must have perked up because what did they consider about themselves? That they were mature. They thought themselves to be the elites. Of course, I'm mature. So what Paul speaks is for me. But this is where Paul begins to pick up his pen and start popping balloon heads because he goes on. He says, We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. That word there uh, describing the rulers of this age passing away. That word, passing away, it's the same word that's used up in chapter 1, verse 28, which says that the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify or that he may cause to pass away the things that are. So that helps us understand these rulers of the age, this this age that we live in, that the Corinthians lived in, they are the same. They are among that group that Paul has been already talking about, the worldly wise, the powerful, the noble, those who are trusting in themselves. These rulers are passing away. And Paul is saying that the wisdom that he's speaking, he did not get this wisdom from them. You would expect all wisdom to come from them because That's what they boast about themselves. If you want to be in the know, you have to listen to us, the wise ones, the strong ones, the noble ones, the rulers of this age. But Paul is saying, I didn't get my wisdom from them. And so you see that he is making a distinction between the mature and the rulers of this age. They are not the same group. And that's a problem for the Corinthians because the Corinthians are acting like they are the same group. They think that being mature also means resulting in them being socially elite in the church. So Paul is blowing up their whole way of thinking. He's showing them that being mature in Christ is not about being better than your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how the world thinks. And the world is passing away along with that kind of thinking. 
In verses 7 through 8, Paul explains why this wisdom that he preaches is not from this age nor the rulers of this age. It's because they don't even know that this kind of wisdom exists. Look at verse 7. Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now before we get more into these verses, we first have to nail down exactly what kind of wisdom is Paul talking about. What is he talking about when he says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature? A wisdom I didn't get from the rulers of this age. A wisdom that the rulers of this age don't understand. What is he talking about? Well, if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 18, we see he's already been talking about what this wisdom is. It is the word of the cross. The word of the cross. And then verse 21, we see that this wisdom of God is the message of salvation. And then if you were to go down to verse 23 and 24, as well as verse 30, we find that this wisdom of God that Paul did not get from the rulers of this age, that the rulers of this age have not understood, this wisdom that he proclaims is Jesus Christ himself. That is the wisdom that the world writes off and treats as trash. That is why Paul says in verse 7, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom. What does Paul mean by that? That God's wisdom, Christ, is spoken in a mystery. It is a hidden wisdom. That doesn't mean that Paul went around secretively whispering the gospel to only select groups of people here and there. No, we know he proclaimed it far and wide. He did not treat it as a secretive thing. He proclaimed it to anyone and everyone. So when Paul describes God's wisdom as a mystery, as being hidden, it is described in that way because people are totally unable to accept it and treasure it apart from God supernaturally opening their eyes to see it. That is why it is called a mystery and hidden. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 8, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, the glory of Christ is invisible to everyone except those whom God graciously chooses to reveal it. And that's what it says at the end of verse 7. This is the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to whose glory? Our glory. We read about that in Isaiah 65, that the glory to come is for God's servants, for his chosen ones, for his people, to all whom he has chosen to reveal it. And then when we come to verse 9, we see that Paul supports what he is saying by referring to Scripture. Verse 9, he says, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen... And ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those 
who love him. Now, it's hard to nail down which scripture exactly Paul is talking about because it's not an exact quotation, but he seems most probably to refer to a combination of two verses, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, and Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. And again, we read Isaiah 65. And so we see that these verses that Paul is quoting or referring to, they're spoken in the context of God's curses falling upon who? Falling upon those who have rejected him. And his blessings, his indescribable blessings that cause you to forget all the bad that ever happened in your life, that falls on who? It falls on his chosen ones. That's the context in which these verses are found that Paul is referring to. And Paul takes Isaiah's language upon his own lips, this language of eye not seeing, ear not hearing, heart not conceiving of. He takes this language upon his lips in connection with what he's already said in verse 7. Now try to follow me. I know I'm being a little convoluted here. I had difficulty with this passage, so just try to hang with me here. What did verse 7 describe God's wisdom as? Hidden, a mystery, right? And now in verse 9, Paul describes this wisdom as being a wisdom that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has conceived. So Paul is showing from Old Testament scripture that he has not invented this. This is what the scriptures have always taught about the wisdom of God. The world rejects the wisdom of God. The world treats the wisdom of God as foolish. And the only ones who don't see it as foolish are the ones that God has graciously chosen to reveal it. Because it is those that he has prepared the glories to come for. Those who love him. Do you love God this morning? If you love him, what God has prepared for you is indescribable. If you don't, you must turn from your sin and put your trust in him because you are headed for the experience of his wrath. So what is the humbling truth that we can take away from verses 6 through 9? Well, sometimes we, like the Corinthians, we can get puffed up in our own hearts about being a Christian. We can think, ha, I figured it out and that other person did not. I found Christ while the high and mighty of this world missed him. Look at me. Look what I've done. Or even in our attitude toward other believers, we can say, look at me. Look at how far I am down the road of sanctification while that brother I don't like very much is just spinning his wheels. What's wrong with him? But listen, the very best and brightest of our age have not been able to find God's wisdom in their own strength. It has remained hidden to them. And you and I, remember what Paul has described us as. We're not among the elites. We are the bottom of the barrel. We are the foolish, the weak, the base. And if the very best and brightest of our age have not been able to discover this, who are we to say that I discovered it in and of myself? That is foolish talk. We cannot take credit for finding Christ or growing in Christ. Paul is making clear here that only God can bring you to that realization of the truth about who Christ is. 
He gets all the credit. Our salvation, our faith is owing to God's merciful, predetermined plan to reveal Christ to us. He gets all the glory for our salvation. So, Paul has popped that bubble. The second pinprick of truth that we see is in verses 10 through 13, and it's similar to the first. Only the Spirit can let you in on his secret wisdom. Only the Spirit can let you in on his secret wisdom. Have you ever wondered why you, of all people, have come to know Christ while others have not? You and others have heard the same gospel. You were dead in similar sins, enslaved to similar sins, and yet you repented and believed while the other person to date has not. Have you ever asked yourself why? Well, Paul tells us why. In verse 10, he answers that question for you. He says, for to us God revealed them. What is that? He's talking about that hidden wisdom. The glories that are to come, which God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them. How? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So God has revealed this to us. The reason I believed and the other person did not is not because I'm wiser than him. It is because the Holy Spirit sovereignly chose to reveal the truth to my dead heart, to your dead heart. That's why. Now, why is it that the Holy Spirit can do that? If this, if this wisdom is hidden, a mystery, and nobody but God can, can reveal it and understand it, how is it that the Holy Spirit then is able to reveal that to us? Well, it's because... As it says in verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit knows the incomprehensible God better than you know the back of your hand. And he knows because he himself is God. He is God. He even searches out the depths of God, that is, those things that are hidden to everyone else, God's eternal plans that he has set in stone from before the foundation of the world, purposed to carry out after he created all that he made. His plan to redeem sinners through Christ crucified and to bring them to glory, that is the deep things of God that the Holy Spirit knows, has searched out. Paul helps us with an illustration in verse 11. He says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, I cannot possibly know what you are thinking, what your motives are. I cannot possibly know what you do behind closed doors or what your secret plans are. You are a body and a spirit. That is how God has created you. The only thing that can know what you're thinking, what your motives are, is your own spirit within you. I can't know that. Only you know that. And it's similar with God. Only the spirit of God 
can know the secret counsels of God. If I can't even know what you're thinking, how much less can I know what God is thinking? Only the Holy Spirit can know that. So how have we, weak, foolish, base people, how have we come to a knowledge of the hidden wisdom of God, Christ crucified? How have we come to know that? Verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. When God saved you, when he saved me, he immediately baptized us in the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's not a second blessing that you have to work really hard for down the road. Maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. No, the moment you came to faith in Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit, this, this person who has searched the deep things of God. If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have received the Holy Spirit, this one who knows the mind of God. And because you've received the one who knows the mind of God, that one has revealed to you the hidden wisdom of God. That is the only reason we can treasure Christ crucified is because the Holy Spirit has opened our blind eyes to see and to embrace that truth. The only reason that we can open this book up on a Sunday morning or during the week and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and become more and more like him is because you have the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ, the hidden wisdom of God to you. The Holy Spirit is the only reason that you and I can know the things that God has freely given to us. And it's these things, verse 13, which Paul is speaking about, which things we also speak, he says, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What is Paul saying there? Well, what he says here gives us a bit of understanding of what he's said before. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 17, Paul describes for us there what he purposed to talk about, what his message would consist of. He said that Christ sent him not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Then drop down to verse 22. He says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then chapter 2, verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. In other words, I didn't come talking to you like the world talks to you. I didn't come uh, trying to speak to you in a fashion that the world values. That's not how I came speaking to you. Instead, he says, uh, I did not come that way proclaiming to you the testimony of God. How did he come? Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, why did he purpose to only say certain things and not say other things? Verse 13 of chapter 2 tells us why. Because he wanted to speak in words that the Holy Spirit had taught him. He didn't want to speak in words that this world, human wisdom, taught him. He knows that doing things the world's way is not going to reveal to anyone the hidden wisdom of God. He knows that only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so as he spoke to these Corinthians when he showed up in that city, he did not come speaking the world's language. He came totally reliant on the Holy Spirit alone to awaken dead hearts. And so he spoke only what the Holy Spirit wanted him to be speaking. Because his hope was only in God who is sovereign over salvation. He knew there was no worldly resources he could draw upon to bring any dead soul to life. So that is why he spoke Christ crucified and resolved to know nothing except that. Why would Paul use the world's teachings and philosophies in order to try and establish a church? That'd be like someone trying to teach me to fly an airplane by giving me a booklet on how to ride a bicycle and expecting me to be able to fly. For me to approach someone and try to woo them with the world and then expect them to be born again, that just doesn't follow. That doesn't work. It's not possible. God's wisdom and the world's wisdom are on totally different wavelengths. They're totally different languages from totally different dimensions. And the point here for these proud Corinthians is that they are foolishly trying to live the Christian life in a worldly way. And that's just not going to work. And we need to understand that today. We try so often to adopt the way the world does things and input it into our Christian lives. But we need to understand we will never win anyone to Christ by trying to woo them with the world. We will never be able to grow the church by using the world's growth strategies. Only the Spirit of God gives life where there was no life before. Only the Spirit can cause growth in the church, the church that he himself birthed into existence. That is why Jesus said what he said to Nicodemus. Turn, if you would, back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, but he was clueless. And so Jesus speaks the sobering, mind-blowing truth to him. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You and I are alive in Christ today only because the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. Not because someone was really skilled in how the world does things and somehow was able to trick us into being born again. No. It was the Holy Spirit who caused you to be born again. And just as you get no credit for your physical birth, you can get no credit for your spiritual rebirth. You repented and believed not because you were wiser than the next person, but because the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. When you repented and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, those were not steps you took in order to get born again. No, those were the first newborn breaths you were taking after the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. The only reason you saw the ugliness of your sin and the glory of Christ is because in that moment the Holy Spirit sovereignly created new life in you and when you repented and believed, that was the first breaths of a newborn babe in Christ. And then when you repented and believed, God justified you and now he's been sanctifying you and the day is coming when he will glorify you. But it all begins with the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. There are no how-to steps to being born again. It is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. So why do we go around trying to do things the way the world does them? When we do things the world's way, and it appears to be working, we get prideful. Because we say, I did that. But we don't realize that that work will pass away along with the world. But if we do things the Holy Spirit's way, As outlined in Scripture, that work will last and we will realize that we can take no credit for it because it was all the work of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to our third and final pinprick of truth that humbles us. And it's this, only Christ can let you in on his secret wisdom. Only Christ can let you in on his secret wisdom. We see that in verses 14 to 16. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or examined. Who's the natural man? The natural man, that is an unbelieving person who does not have the Holy Spirit of God. And because he does not have the Holy Spirit of God, the wisdom of God remains what to him? Hidden, a mystery, because he doesn't have the only one who can show him, can reveal to him the hidden wisdom of God. The natural man or the natural woman is blind to the glory of Christ crucified. So it shouldn't surprise us when we share the gospel to someone and the only response we get is a blank stare or a polite smile and nod and you can tell, I can't wait till this freak gets away from me. 
That shouldn't surprise us that that is the response so often. They respond that way because they cannot even begin to look into what we are telling them. They lack the spiritual resources they need to even begin to speak that language. But it's very different for the believer. Verses 15 through 16, Paul says, But he who is spiritual, that is the person who has received the Holy Spirit, the believer, he who is spiritual appraises or examines all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? So because the believer has received the Spirit, the Spirit who knows all things, searches all things, because of that, the believer himself, through the Spirit, has all the spiritual resources he needs to examine all things. And in this context, he's speaking of the hidden wisdom of God, Christ crucified, the glories that are to come for those who love God. That is why we can read this book and understand what it's saying because the Holy Spirit is illumining our minds to understand what this book says. And above all, the believer, through the Spirit, looks at Jesus Christ crucified, and we see in Jesus the infinite power and wisdom of God. And that's why we can sing what we just sang. Let the world have whatever it wants to have. Just give me Jesus because we see him as the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. And it's the Holy Spirit who has opened our blind eyes to recognize that. But on the flip side, unbelievers, they cannot see that. And so we need to cry out to God for them. Because to them, we are from a different planet. As far as they're concerned, we are off our rocker, one card shy of a full deck. They cannot understand why you would throw everything away for a crucified Savior. Peter, the apostle, said as much in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He said, speaking to believers, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They just don't get it. And that brings us lastly to verse 16, the second half of that verse, where Paul says, But we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. This is another way of saying what he's been saying all throughout this passage. Having the mind of Christ, that's synonymous with having the Holy Spirit who searches the deep things of God and makes them known to us. This passage here, verses 6 through 16, is an intensely Trinitarian passage. You see Paul making reference to God the Father to the Holy Spirit, and here at the very end, to Christ himself. He's, you see how he draws distinctions and never confuses uh, the distinction between these three persons of the Trinity. He speaks of them very distinctly. 
without ever confusing them. He never refers to the Father as the Son or as the Spirit. He never refers to the Son as the Father or as the Spirit. He never refers to the Spirit as the Son or as the Father. They are distinct persons, and yet we see that they share the same essence. We we see that they are one God. The mind of the Father is the mind of the Spirit, and the mind of the Spirit, as Paul declares, is the mind of Christ. You see that they share the same essence, the same mind, the same will, and yet they are three distinct persons, and there's nothing in all of creation like that. And so we cannot conceive how that is even possible. But the Bible declares that that is who our God is, our triune God. The mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And this, again, is where Paul has picked up his pin to stab at the Corinthians' pride again. By just that simple phrase, we have the mind of Christ. And who is Christ? Christ is the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, the Corinthians, they claim to be mature. They claim to be at the pinnacle of sanctification. They've arrived. But Paul, all throughout this passage, is showing them that to be mature means that you embrace the hidden wisdom of God which is Christ crucified. He's been explaining that to be mature is to be taught of the Holy Spirit. To be taught of the Holy Spirit is to have the mind of Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, that will necessarily result in your life being conformed to that humble mindset of Christ, one of humility. The Corinthians thought they were mature. But throughout this passage, Paul is laying the groundwork to show them they are not mature because they are behaving as if they are being taught by the world instead of the Holy Spirit. Because the world says, get what you can get. Do whatever you need to do to exalt yourself over others. And that is how they've been living. But the Spirit says, treasure Christ and follow him. Pick up your cross in humbling yourself and follow him. So these believers are not mature. Instead, they are infants in Christ, as demonstrated by their prideful jealousy and their strife. And I think you can see how this applies to you and me. Do we think that we have arrived spiritually? Are there brothers and sisters in Christ who we view as being inferior to us? Do we take credit for things that only the Holy Spirit can take credit for, then if if so, if that is the case with us, we are not as mature as we think we are. And recognizing that and humbly confessing that sin of pride to God, that is the first step towards true Christ-like maturity, the kind of maturity that sees and treasures the hidden wisdom of God, who is Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself, as we saw in Philippians 2, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And true maturity is following him, treasuring him, and treasuring the the road that he's calling us to walk on. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your word uh, can so humble us in so many different ways. Father, we thank you for the truths of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16. Father, we, we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds to understand this passage. Uh, I know I didn't explain it as clearly as I wished I had, Father, so we just ask for your spirit to come alongside us and to teach us as only he can teach us, and to grow within us that mind of Christ that is accessible to us, us who you have caused to be born again, Lord. May we follow Christ closer. May we truly walk in that humble, Christ-like maturity that the Spirit teaches us to walk in. And Father, we pray for any who may be here who are still blind to all of this, all that Paul has written is just falling on their deaf ears uh, and it's just not making any sense and they can't see why there's all the fuss about Jesus Christ. Lord, may you, by your sovereign, gracious power, may you bring them to life. May you open their eyes to see what they cannot see apart from you. May you show them the ugliness of their sin and the glory of Jesus Christ. And may your spirit grant them repentance and faith to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, may you begin that work of maturity in them as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.